Hello and welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures Podcast, member of the ANA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Berberich. Whether you market for a hot new brand targeting Gen Z consumers or a 150-year-old toothpaste company, you need to ask yourself, what value can I deliver to consumers in a virtual world? Today, Catherine Henry and Lewis Smithingham of Media Monks are taking us on a deep dive into the world of virtualization. They discuss how the rise of the metaverse will affect the future of work, product development, and of course, marketing. As consumers continue to demand more control and less interruption in their day-to-day lives, brands need to figure out where they fit in a fully virtualized tomorrow. And Catherine and Lewis are here to help. Okay, everyone, we are back in the Marketing Futures Virtual Podcast Studio. I have two guests today with me, and we are jumping back in the metaverse, and we're taking a bit of a different look at it this time. Um, Catherine and Lewis, thank you so, so much for joining me on the pod today. Yeah, our pleasure. So before we get in, uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of uh, fun and cool and meaningful stuff to talk about. Tell us both a little bit uh, about yourselves and how your journey led you to Media Monks. Uh, Catherine, go ahead and start us off. Okay, well, um, my my journey to Media Monks may be a little more circuitous than many others because I spent, you know, I have an MBA, a master's in marketing. And so I've been looking at, at trends for some 15, 20 years and talking to major in my case, institutional investors in financial services about what that means for emerging technologies. And so I went around the world advising institutional investors on what they could expect from new technologies and how they would transform the way we work, play, and live. And so as the metaverse started to evolve in its earliest forms, we called it VR, AR, XR, I spent, I really decided I wanted to concentrate exact exclusively on that and went back to school and studied virtual and augmented reality media. I learned how to be a VR filmmaker. I started up the XR Creatives, a a membership of XR Creatives, which reached up to 3,000 people. And I started to publish very actively and create a a blog and travel internationally to meet people and build up my own company, Palpable Media. And then, of course, after the pandemic came, I saw that there's a huge opportunity for companies to innovate. And I've always admired Media Monks for like many years. I'm just a big fan of the company. And I was really thrilled to get the opportunity to join um, in just May of 2021. So it's been over a year and it's been awesome because we just go from strength to strength and working with a lot of companies, helping them navigate what is the metaverse. That is very cool. Yeah. Uh, Lewis, tell us about yourself. Hey, Lewis Smithingham, uh, SVP of Innovation, Media Monks. So I have worked in and out in some way, shape, or form in VFX or gaming or film production for 20-odd years and started specializing more and more in forms of advanced imaging. So things like bullet time, things where there's a lot of cameras involved generally. And... um, VR started kicking off pretty heavy in for its like third or fourth go around in like 2015. And I saw a lot of the content, whether it was engine-based or immersive video-based and thought, frankly, I could probably do a better job. And so start joined up with a feature filmmaker, a guy named Doug Lyman, who owned, owned a company called 30 Ninjas at the time, with another person, Julina Tatlock. And he had done Born Identity, Edge of Tomorrow, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and we partnered up. 
to create a bunch of VR content. We had a narrative series called Invisible. We got a Guinness record for that, for first narrative series, and ended up veering more and more into more complex and different technologies. Uh, over that course of time, I started doing some directing work for Media Monks and frankly, really enjoyed it and love Wes, our founder, and company I was own, an owner of, 30 Ninjas, started leaning more into development work. And to be blunt, I don't really have the attention span for development work a lot of the time. It takes a long time to spin up a movie, and then so-and-so has to go be in Star Wars, and now your movie is delayed again. And so I hit up Wes and said, hey, can we just do weird stuff together and figure out what it is? And he's, he threw me the title of Director of Creative Solutions, and I joined in May of 2020 and was sort of handed like, here's your laptop, here's a phone, you'll figure it out, have fun. And pandemic slammed into us three months in and just basically I've done, did what I've always done and made interesting content using complex tools and use technology to drive storytelling. Whether that's in the metaverse, whether that's virtualization, whether that's cookie configurators, whether that's live streams, like it, it really doesn't matter. It's, and that's what's been great about Media Monks is the opportunity to work across a really diverse set of projects. That's awesome. I love that both of you have like real hands-on experience in this. It's not just the theory, it's the actual production and application, which I think is gonna be uh, just a great dimension to this conversation today. Now, the reason we're all talking is because Media Monks actually released a fascinating article on how virtualization and gaming in particular are going to affect the future of work. Now, that's all incredibly relevant for our listenership. So um, let's start off by talking about how some of that's already finding its way into how we work and what that might look like as a kind of fully realized future. Well, I'll say something really quick there. I mean, I don't think Catherine and I have been in the same room together in like physical room in like four years or something. Four media monks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, but it, the point I'm making is just from to that end, I think the way virtualization, the way the, the future of work and the way honestly we connect is changing and it's becoming more normative to have a social life or a business life that's primarily conducted in a non-physical way. Um, it's not to like say that physical doesn't work. I have an editor working in my guest bedroom right now on a project that I wander over to, but at the same time, being able to connect virtually allows us to gain, and I hate using this word, but I'll use it, gain a sense of presence. And particularly mm -hmm. when you're in engine-based environments, one of the core broken aspects, in my opinion, video conferencing has two core broken, broken things. One is eye lines. Mm -hmm. They're broken unless you set up some sort of teleprompter, which is very complicated. It, it, it doesn't work um, mm -hmm. because no matter what, you're never making eye contact. I also think that inherently staring at a device that has Slack, email, websites, all that sort of stuff means that attention spans are inherently fragmented. And then I think just from a base perspective, we form memories when we do things together and the thing that people have realized as the metaverse grows is the term doing things together doesn't just apply to we're going to go golfing together. It can mean mini golf together in VR. It can mean meeting up to play D&D &D in VR. It can mean going into workrooms, but forming memories requires some form of interaction and some form of interactivity. 
for most people. I mean, there's different learning styles for everybody, but personally, like I form memories through shared experiences mm-hmm. and the metaverse allows us to do that. To, that's a circuitous way of answering. I think the way we form this is, is through new, normalizing new ways of interaction and new ways of engaging and realizing that there are whole generations of people where socializing almost primarily other than when you're at school on video games is totally normal. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, IRL is, is kind of weird for some of us to that yeah. extent. There's this dystopian fear that Palmer Lucky is going to descend down from the sky and place headsets on all of us and then build border fences while he's doing it or something. And it's going to be this future where we're all plugged in and whatever. It's not, it's not going to happen, dude. Like there's not enough cobalt (laughs) actually available on the planet earth. The point is with Moore's law, there is no way there you could, we could do that. It's not going to happen from a physics. You can't get an, you can't make enough of them. There's not enough stuff. Not going to happen. What is going to happen is it will be totally normal to be like, yo, dude, like d- instead of doing Zoom, do you want to like meet up in Fortnite or Horizons or something? That's normal. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I completely agree, Lewis. I mean, <laughs> one of my favorite phrases is that you can discover more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. And that's by Plato. And that's absolutely true today. I mean, you know, the way that people, and this is something I spent a lot of time noodling on, as Lewis says, is the future habits and behaviors of the younger generations, Gen Alpha, Gen Z. And the way that they communicate, the way that they interact is through play. And so we have to really reimagine how we can work with them and engage them in a meaningful yet playful way. The way that the conversation is evolving for brands is no longer one-sided. It's very much a conversation where people have to opt in. And so you have to give them something worth listening to, worth, worth engaging with. We were all chatting earlier, and one of the things that came up was that in this world where I'm sure our brand marketers listening already feel that the consumer has so much more control than they used to when it was one to many, you know, through social media. And I was about to say Web 2.0, but that would have aged me severely. Um, (laughs) But in the metaverse, when people are like finally able to really fully assert themselves virtually, they're going to want even more control. So how are brands going to respond to that? And what's going to be the kind of driver of wanting even more control because you're now virtual, uh, fully immersed in a virtual world? I think honestly, like what brands will have to see is they'll have to, and advertisers in particular, will have to start being more creative and they'll have to start making stuff that isn't awful and boring. And like, you know, we're in a paradigm and I think it's without throwing shade, like I think we can do better than fixing subscription issues by adding advertising. Yeah. There's, there's, there's better things we can do. And we can, if you, I hate to think about the advertising industry and people ask me what I do. I don't work in advertising. I work in content. I work in entertainment. It just so happens that my patrons are brands. But like, if you look at, this sounds so grandiose, but if you look at any Renaissance painter, some crazy rich baron was their patron. 
And that's, pues. that's the difference. And I think we'll get to a place, brands need to realize, and advertisers need to realize that the stuff they are relying on revenue for is stuff that people actively attempt to avoid. Like, this is like, what do you do? <laughs> Why are you doing that? And so the trick is to find stuff that people actually want to consume, people want to engage with, provide actual value to those people. And that's where that control will come in because people will be able to say, no, nah, dude, I don't want to watch that. Like, I don't need yeah. to see that commercial. A hundred percent. I mean, this is, we're not advertising at people anymore. Again, it's not this, this captive audience where, you know, they have to sit through a commercial because that's the only time they're going to get content and they will never see that content again. I mean, we, we've evolved well beyond that and we have so many competing platforms, but now we have to consider that in worlds like Rep Room alone, we have some 14 million rooms and that's just one platform. So the question is, how do we incentivize, invite, and motivate people to participate with your brand? And it's 100% reimagining what that experience looks like and how do you engage them in an authentic way? Because if you're not tapping into their values and the things that they like to do on that platform and you know, giving them a reason to spend time with you, they have a million other places where they, they will go. And so we also have to stop going to the places where we are told are popular. So one of the, my frustrations is, you know, I often hear people say that they have to do an event in a certain place or they have to issue an NFT. And I'd really like to see an end to this herd mentality about the metaverse and really take a more holistic view as to the long-term commercial opportunity, but more importantly, the cred they get from participating as an authentic actor with their fan base. I love that. I love the way you put that because yeah, it, it's just, um, I keep using the word dimension and I don't want to beat it to death, but this really is another level of value offering that's kind of gone beyond anything marketers have had to deal with to date. But I'd love to talk about kind of where you two see the evolution of the metaverse, uh, virtualization, because uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say we're in the very nascent stages of all of this and that a true metaverse is years away, but all but inevitable. How do you see that evolution taking place? Do you think that it's going to be a situation where platforms are going to try and find their niche and try and grab a specific audience? Or is there going to be a race to become the metaverse platform? I think there's definitely a race. You know, there are so many variables that could come into play to upset the presumed leader. And that's what we saw play out web too. We're definitely going to see that, you know, we're in the Netscape AOL stage of the metaverse. And so there's so much more that we don't know. It's like early iPhone. The applications have yet to be discovered and people talk about the killer app. I would say it's the killer activity for the metaverse is has yet to be discovered. So Look, it's anybody's guess, but it is definitely very competitive space because it requires a significant capital commitment on behalf of the participants and a very long-term dedicated view. And as we've seen with Meta, there's definitely pushback from the street. So I would suggest that this takes real vision and leadership to be in the metaverse. And on the other hand, I would also suggest that it's well-placed because virtualization is an inevitable process. It's already begun. You know, I heard it's on a deck the other day and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get this to catch on. 
somebody referred to the us being in the Cretaceous phase of the metaverse, which I was like, that's great. Like we should we should do that for all trends. So here's the thing. First of all, if we have to define the term metaverse within this context, because yeah. I view metaverse as in the same way that digital runs alongside our everyday life, mm-hmm. virtualization is just the next evolution, the next general phase. Like, do I think that in 10 years we will have avatars that we spend more time doing than anything else and it is all we're doing and we're 3d represented and it's a perfect world and all that sort of stuff no i don't that's not going i know however we absolutely will have a space where we treat the virtual world in the same way we treat the social media world today and at the same time commerce and business all physical things will need to have some form of geospatial representation in a 3D world. And whether that is just your car is accurately represented as a CAD model, where the PBR textures of your 3D model are accurately represented, and that particular asset will have individual material properties that connect back to the formula that you use within your factory. So when you build your car, you can then trade and trade nickel and aluminum as commodities all that sort of stuff. And will we not have physical computers? We will be connecting to cloud compute. Absolutely. All that sort of stuff will have to happen. At the same time, there's a lot of legit physics stuff that's going to need to get solved. I mentioned earlier the thing about straight up the lack of minerals available. Moore's Mm -hmm. law has plateaued. Things aren't going to be getting smaller. So if we need more devices at the same side, Besides, we need a lot of stuff. And you start getting into a place where, okay, how do we mine more of this? How do we get more of this resource? All that sort of stuff adds layers and layers of complexity. And then you get to the next part is, okay, if we're transmitting all this data, how are we doing that? Because it's a lot of data that's required. And 5G adoption is nowhere near as high as it should be. And the specific wavelengths that are available right now are not the most stable and they're not the most available. And, you know, New York City, 35% of New Yorkers don't have access to basic internet, like sub five megabytes. And so that gets you to a place where like, we have to solve those problems. But in the same sense, like I remember the way Facebook was when I joined at college in 2005 and it feels similar to this. I think there will be heavy competition, obviously, but I think, and we have seen ultimately their interoperability is the way everybody is going to profit. Mm -hmm. Being able to move between the same space so that your toy shows up in Fortnite in the same way it shows up in Roblox, in the same way it shows up in your Amazon storefront, in the same way it shows up in your personal video game, in the same way it shows up in your YouTube videos is going to be needed. And so all that sort of stuff converges and combines, and that's where it will go, but I think, while at the same time, I think this is happening, and if not already happened, in the sense that when you look at Andy Jassy is the CEO of of Amazon. Mm -hmm. Andy Jassy was the CEO of AWS prior to that. So that gives you an idea of how important cloud compute is and how much this virtualization matters to the world. As you see that, it's happening, but I think it's going to happen in a more logical and fluid way. I always say that technology really doesn't matter until it feels completely inevitable. Mm. And in the same way, like the way we interact with our phones right now wouldn't work 
in 2006, it's going to take that amount of time to get there. So it'll, it'll take time, but I, and I think it'll be hyper-competitive. You'll see people trying to say, we're the only way to do it. And this is the only thing. Unfortunately, we already see like anti-consumer geo-blocking behaviors, all that sort of stuff is going to keep happening, but it'll sort itself out in the same way all this sort of stuff sorts it out. You know, you touched on something there, and I just wanted to kind of get your opinion on it. What do you think that inflection point will be for interoperability? That has got to be a big thing because it's going to take separate entities who are fighting for market share to really genuinely open the confluence of, of data and information and, and sharing. Do you think it's just going to get to the point where the opportunity is too big to quibble about territory? Or do you think that there's going to be one big merger and then you're going to see a lot of people like pushed out quickly? Like what, do you, what in your mind? Because I feel like the humanity behind that aspect could hold back the, uh, the metaverse. In I, I think it'll come down to resources more than anything. Mm. Mm. In the sense that if you're like straight up hire, try hiring like Unreal developers or Unity developers right now, good luck finding a veteran person. Veterans right now are two years out. Mm -hmm. And in the sense that if we have all these different programs and all these different ways of interoperating, it's, it's not going to work out. And in the same sense, it's not going to adopt. I think we will have PlayStation versus Xbox, PC versus, versus Mac, all that sort of stuff will, will occur, obviously. But getting to places where things can open in the same way, frankly, if money can be made from that, then people will do it. It's, it's that blunt. And if it makes it easier to run with USD, Universal Scene Descriptor, which a lot of people are pushing for right now, then it probably will happen that way. But I think a lot of companies are going to try to claim that like, oh, we're the, the metaverse company of the world. And in order for the metaverse companies to be, be a thing, they all have to work together and they have to connect and they have to acknowledge the existence of each other. And mm -hmm. you do see people like Meta and Epic doing really good jobs of acknowledging the existence of other companies. And I think that's really cool to see. And it's really interesting to see that. And that's mm -hmm. that sort of work really excites me. My concern centers around the creative ecosystem because while we are seeing a number of actors emerge that clearly dominate certain segments of the evolving metaverse for the moment. It is concerning that many of them do not, in my opinion, adequately support the creator community and are in fact leveraging what could be potentially very onerous terms on creators such that they could end up effectively choking the creative pipeline. And so- if they start imposing costs or fees of up to 70% on any work that is traded or sold or, or created on a platform, then it's really going to dampen the growth of the industry as a whole. And so that's something that I watch quite closely. And I'm, I'd really like to see um, some competitors e emerge with more lucrative terms for creatives because that's so much depends upon them. I mean, I'm in... I, I have such an unfortunately jaded perspective here. I'll say I lost a lot of hope when Green Day put out their uh, their last couple records. And uh, <laughs> I feel you on that, man. Just like, dude, like selling out is real and it's going to keep happening. And the fact like, yes, creators should be given more ownership. And I think there's actually 
there's this thing that TikTok does that no one talks about. And TikTok, if you're listening, TikTok, you should have done a better job marketing this and we can help you with that. There's a thing and you should look this up. It's called sound on, on TikTok. And so what is amazing is if you publish your original music to TikTok and I mean, I, so I started my career very early days as a roadie and I was in music. I was working with bands, bands that got pretty big. And I saw my friends lose the rights to everything they had done and basically go from being a fairly successful small touring band to being a huge band, getting giant radio play, but making next to no money because the label had them on a 360 deal. So what TikTok does, which is fascinating, and to get distribution historically, you have to pay somebody's uncle to pay somebody's uncle in New Jersey to then put you on the radio. And it's a whole mess. If you publish through SoundOn, you retain 100% of your rights. TikTok then distributes your music on multiple platforms. So it distributes to Spotify, distributes to Tidal, distributes to Apple Music. And that's really, really, really interesting and really, really cool. I don't know what TikTok are doing with that yet, but it gives you this opportunity to see a place where I'm sure they're making money off of when it plays on TikTok. But at the same time, it gives an opportunity for artists to retain their own rights as they come up. And you see similar stuff happening on YouTube, but those sort of relationships are where I think there are opportunities. But at the same time, ultimately, capitalism is going to continue to be capitalism for the foreseeable future until we get to a Mad Max state at some point. Sorry, I'm not sure I share this quite the same dystopian vision, although, you know, who knows? Uh, in the long-term, we're all dead. Certainly, I will be by then. But here's the thing. I think that when it comes to decentralized finance, the opportunity is that we can expect creatives to have a lot more power. I do believe that decentralization of and the disruption of a number of different industries will see intermediaries go by the wayside. And we're already seeing that with DAOs being created in lieu of record labels. We're seeing individual creators being able to create their own coin. So rather than say, hey, Venmo me, we can actually expect people to reward their, their coin and for their coins to rise and fall in value in uh, accordance with the relative good or benefit that they deliver to their public. So I do believe that there will emerge new tools that will, will give creators more power. But still, I think it would be in brands' best interest to work closely with them. Because after all, for me, the biggest threat to brands today in the metaverse are not other brands in the real world. It's emerging creatives in the metaverse. So in other words, Artifact was a sneaker company that was doing an incredible job at creating virtual assets. And so when you talk about virtualization, that's kind of the bigger, longer term play, right? So Nike wasn't just smart about buying it out because they had to do a downstream vertical integration so that they could reach and exploit this new market. What they're looking to do is actually not only exploit this new market and commercialize the opportunity that the metaverse presents, they're also looking to squash out one of their biggest competitors because we're no, looking, no longer looking at the specific color that you see in real life or the stitching or the comfort, all of those properties of the brand no longer obtain. So what it obtains, what's really important to people are the properties that this asset has on a certain platform that has nothing to do with your real life branded value. 
that you've been working so hard to create. The taste of the cookie is now irrelevant. So what can that sneaker do in the metaverse that it doesn't do in the real world, which is why going back to Lewis's point about imagination, this is where we need to focus because the creators on these platforms know what makes people tick. They know what's exciting to people on that platform and they can create it and they will create it faster than many brands who aren't as responsive to the promise that the metaverse poses. The ANA Educational Foundation, or AEF for short, helps marketers and advertisers build their talent pipelines with top, diverse candidates and helps prepare students for careers in marketing. Through initiatives like the MADE Internship Program, the Campus Speakers Program, and one-to-one -one mentoring, the AEF is helping to build a better future for our industry. For more information, visit AEF.com. So we've been talking about social, making some connections, and that makes a lot of sense when I talk to people about the metaverse and how it's going to change and affect the world and particularly marketing and advertising. Social media is the closest, one of the closest comparisons that people can bring up. But I'd like to hear in your opinion, what's going to be different about virtualization in the metaverse uh, than the, the social media landscape that we see now? Well, I think virtualization is a tremendous opportunity to express oneself completely differently. And also to, and when I say express oneself, I don't just mean their physical identity, male, female, animal, asteroid, which is also important and incredibly impactful psychologically, because we have an opportunity to reimagine who we are in this new space and interact with people in a new way. So the communities that are forming, the bonds that are forming, the relationships, the way we interact and work are completely changing. So that's very important. But I think that we also need to think about like how we can do things in a way that we've never done before and really unravel many of our old business practices and assumptions about what we do and how we do it. So it's, it's a really bigger, longer term conversation. And it's not gonna be solved within the next couple of weeks or months or even the next two, three years, but we need to start. I think um, like the thing that I catch on, on that is like, I mean, I, I actually think that they'll be more similar in terms of how they shift or the quantity they shift our culture. I think one of the areas that is worth digging into throughout this is while social media, we all learned that if it's on the internet, it's there for fucking ever. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Because this next story I'm going to tell does have that in it. Um, it. It's there forever. And so all your sketchy posts you made in the past are still there. With NFTs, it's gnarlier. And with Web3, it is way gnarlier because it is not wipeable. It is, you can't take that data back. It is there forever. And so that sort of permanence is super, super important. And I think it's something we, we have to really, and, and brands have to realize when they're going into this, there's, you can't do commercials that are bummers. You can't go into places where without really thinking about it. And that shift will be, I think, more real for the social era. Um, yeah, I, I really think that will be our, our biggest connection point there is that transformative shift there. 
That makes a lot of sense. So you actually touched on this earlier, that gaming, obviously the most prominent, I think, activity in the metaverse right now is gaming. Uh, and because of that, you know, Gen Z is not going to need to be educated on the metaverse. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like you could tell any millennial, oh, we're the Uber of this. Well, I have an idea of what your company's trying to do. Any, all Gen Z is ever going to know, oh, it's like uh, you're shopping in Fortnite. You know what I mean? It's a very adaptable, and that's one of the biggest hurdles to a lot of new technological things. So how is that culture of gaming going to spill into other places like the future of work? And what do brands need to know about that? That's a really but, tough one. Go ahead, Catherine. Well, look, gaming is already, everything we do is a game. We are in a constant state of play. When we think about, you know, I, I love Nir Ayal's book, Hooked, because it reminds you the fact that if even when your bank says, you know, ping, you know, Chase wants to know if you want to check your balances. Chase wants to know if you want to like optimize your portfolio, your HSBC or whomever. Even those are forms of gamification. So anything that prompts you to interact and engage is a form of a game. The nature of the game, however, is changing. So what we consider a game online is really a form of exchange, of expression, and that it's, it's, and that engenders a kind of a sense of fluid belonging in places where communities form. So you have these new town squares, but they're virtual, right? And what you do there is you gather with other people and then you form rituals and you start to play certain games and you, you do certain things. And in that, it all like creates this sense of belonging and community. So gamification is kind of where it starts, but the nature of the game is changing in the metaverse. And so that's where the opportunity is for brands looking to engage. It's like, okay, how can you participate in this game? What can you offer that is of value? Why would people want to play your game as opposed to participating in something else? So that's my thought on gamification. I think like, and this is going to sound jaded, but like, I think people, I think people underestimate how normalized gaming is and how like the age bar, like if pr most people like under the age of like 45 or 50 grew up playing video games in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Once you get like below a certain demographic range, like usually like below 45, you start getting to a point where personal computers at home were readily available or at very least they were at school and you were playing Oregon Trail. And so you start looking at the way a lot of us form, literally formed language and formed the way we tell stories as being informed by video games. You know, my, some of my actual earliest memories are playing computer games at like age four. Um, I distinctly remember some of the games I played back then. And so, we, I think people underestimate how much and how huge that is and how much a part of a normal part. There's a weird like Napoleon syndrome thing or inverse Napoleon syndrome where people still think gaming is niche and still think that gaming is like, oh, you know, that's just dumb video games. Only boys play those. Like, it's all for 14 year old boys. And it, like, no, dude, like- It's 50% women. Plays. Yeah, and it's, everyone it's, plays video games now and it's normal and it's okay we're, and we're getting we're going to get to a point and like again if 
American heart disease numbers stay as consistently bad as they have been, we are going to get to a point where the vast majority of Americans did grow up playing video games in the next 10 to 15 years. Yeah. That will happen. Look, 70% of gamers play with friends or family. So it's not an isolated activity where it's just one person who's locked up in their room eating junk food. That's an old stereotype and it's really got to go. That is sometimes true with me for the record. (laughs) (laughs) It's sometimes true for a lot of people. Um, But here's the thing, like, you know, some 50% are, are young women and, you know, I would say 50 to 60%, and I forget the exact number, but they are, um, they spend a good portion of their time socializing, not actually playing the game. So the game is often becoming a vehicle for interacting. It's actually the demographics that's slightly older. So the people in their thirties who play games as games. So we're seeing an evolution, especially with Gen Z, to use this as a vehicle for socializing and for hanging out rather than, you know, a, a, a player versus player game that's done in isolation. Mm-hmm. And I so think I think that's interesting statistics about the evolving social aspect. NFTs, there has been a huge amount of just discourse and a little skepticism and we're seeing all kinds of stuff happening in the nft universe i would love to get your takes on it is this just hype is it something that is going to inevitably have a future and kind of find its place what should we be thinking on the nft tip for me the nfts have been the tail that wagged the dog of the metaverse and so we've had that's been really driving headlines and i think it's given people a disproportionate view of the longer term success of the metaverse and the the prospects for the metaverse generally. So I will always discourage people from linking the concept of virtualization and metaverse with the development of the NFT market. What I would say is that NFTs are certainly one marketing vehicle that people understand because it's, it's like a virtual, it's a commodity. And they see this as something that has a potentially very high value. I do believe that with this recent correction that we're seeing, you know, the end of that initial hype cycle that was like really peaked in 20, in this past year, but now we're, we're probably going to stabilize into something far more reasonable. The most interesting thing for me, and I'm sure Lewis has got some really great insights on this too, is the evolution of these new communities formed around specific assets. So the Yuga Labs, properties may well evolve into their own metaverse world, their own currencies, et cetera. So that's probably the most interesting outcome of all of this. But as assets themselves, I believe it's going to be a a pretty strong correction and there will still be a brisk trade, but just as like baseball cards had great valuations in, in the physical world, I don't expect that the virtual assets would be significantly disproportionate to their physical world counterparts that's in the long run i mean i tend to agree with a lot of that i think the biggest thing is right now just like whenever anything is new there's a lot of gold rushers coming in and frankly making stuff that's awful and boring and useless and stuff that nobody wants opportunity call back to like the et video game that was clearly just a bad Uh, marketing uh, ploy and like 
that's sort of what happens with NFTs. They were like, oh, let's do our cleaning product NFT because that's what people want. No, dude, stop that. <laughs> but there's yeah. a lot of really cool legitimate NFT work that's being done. There's communities that are being built around it. Generative NFTs are amazing. There are entire pipelines that we haven't cracked the, the surface of for NFTs. There's gaming NFT systems that are absolutely spectacular and aren't disgenuous and are super, super interactive and engaging. All that sort of stuff is going to happen. But we are in a place right now where like, we're just like, oh, look at the overpriced Gorilla JPEG is, is sort of where we're in. And that like, mm. whatever, like that's like with every, anything, man, like, yeah. And all this sort of stuff will happen. And I say this as a person that does collect stuff. So both of you actually touched on something that I want to kind of talk about in the world of virtual, larger world of virtualization, where, you know, a cleaning product brand or a toothpaste or a toilet paper wants to get in on this new bleeding edge next generation platform for brands that aren't that Red Bull where everybody's expecting you to do something crazy and so you're just paying off expectations, for brands that are a little more mundane and don't really see themselves authentically fitting in the metaverse, do you have any advice, any kind of mindset that they should be trying to adopt? Uh, I, I don't think anybody's thing? mundane. I think where can you provide authentic value is what I would lean into. Uh, I call back every time and the story comes up on every call. I'm sorry. Uh, do you remember the game Checks Quest in the 90s? I think I might the actually. Check Serial called up John Carmack and said, hey, I want to license Doom because every 10-year-old oh in the world wants to play Doom and they're not allowed to because it's too gory. Can I buy the Doom? Buy Doom? And John Carmack's probably like, eh, weird, <laughs> but cool. Here's, I'll take your money. And Check Serial reskinned Doom and then put 200,000 CD-ROMs in cereal boxes and 10-year-olds everywhere went wild because like, like Lewis has never Doom. gotten over this one. And it, no, straight <laughs> it's up. Marked him for it, life. It corresponded to a 300% increase in the sale of Czech cereal. Would you think that Czechs doing Doom makes sense? No. Not a million years, no. But it was rad and people wanted it. So if you make toilet gaskets and you can find like a toilet gasket NFT campaign or toilet gasket Roblox world and you think people will like it and you're providing a thing that people will like, sick, do it. That's, mm -hmm. that's the thing. And that's where like, you just have to check yourself every time with this stuff. It's like, are you doing it to provide authentic value to others or are you just doing it to cash grab? Because mm -hmm. generally speaking, almost all of the time other than maybe like abba and the spice girls cash grabs are terrible yeah, yeah. i think you know when you talk about authentic value and you mentioned also that brands would not see themselves in this space i would suggest they need to think harder i mean what is the question of value what sort of value are you delivering your customers in real life if you have loyal customers then they clearly appreciate something important about you and your brand. So how do you tap into that? How do you reward them for being great customers? And if you start thinking in that in those terms, from the customer perspective, what is it that they'd love to hear from you? What is it that they'd love about your brand? How can they participate in the real world? So what sort of digital assets would then confer to them 
some physical world properties or physical world benefits or access to something that they couldn't otherwise. And that's the beauty of the metaverse is you have access no matter where you are in the world. You might access things no matter what your wallet size is. So if you're Balenciaga, you can now sell, sell $7 sneakers. So it's really a question of what you want to do. But again, it's about being proactive and creative and looking for a solution rather than passively dismissing this as a fad and waiting for somebody else to establish the market for you. So before we kind of switch topics a little bit on the podcast, uh, if people are really geared up, they're getting it now a little more listening to the two of you, how do they get uh, in touch with Media Monks and, and how do they follow what you're doing and, and all that? Well, they can certainly contact us through our website. That's the most obvious thing to do. And then you know, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I always share my thoughts, my research. I do a lot of independent research around the metaverse, specifically targeted towards brands and the brands and the future of entertainment. And I respond to every single comment. So I really love having that conversation out in the open because even if people might be direct competitors or we're all working in the same industry, the conversation is still the same. So I'm always happy to have that conversation online because I think it's great to get input from multiple sources. So uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to take a little bit of a left turn. Uh, we ask all of our guests three questions. And this first one, very open by design. I uh, would love to get uh, answers from both of you. What are your feelings and thoughts on diversity, equity, and inclusion? I mean, it diversity, equity, and inclusion is absolutely vital to everything we do. And it's to all the points made on this call, it's how we build a place where people will go. It's also how we stop making stuff that's terrible. I've absolutely been in rooms where it's a bunch of white dudes pitching ideas and you're like, man, that in your bubble, that might sound like a good idea, but that is terrible. You should, you should, you should not do that idea. And I think the more opinions, the more voices, the more new voices, the better our stories get, the more interesting our stories get. Hmm. And frankly, the better our society as a whole will get. Um, so I absolutely look into that. We just published an article about this actually. Um, I'm the head of one of our ERGs for disability. I think there's really exciting stuff in this space. There's opportunities from selfishly from a disability perspective, there's opportunities for accommodation in virtual spaces mm -hmm. that can't be done in physical spaces. And it's, it's really meaningful. And so it, it changes my life on a day-to-day -day basis, but it also is vital to the way we all will function together. Yeah, it's hard to follow that one up. I mean, <laughs> um, on a personal note, as a Black woman in technology space, it's traditionally been dominated by, you know, men. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's very common for me to, to be the only person in a room mm -hmm. uh, who looks like me. And I appreciate the extent to which the industry has embraced me. And I am frequently asked to speak, present, keynote at events around the world. And that's very gratifying because I'd like to think that they're asking me to do so because I'm deeply specialized in this area. But there's got to be a lot of people out there who have the talent and are looking to be recognized and to develop their skills. And so the pipeline of, of future leaders has got to be open to 
multiple voices, people from every background and ethnicity, because it just makes the tapestry of the metaverse, this next stage of the internet, the next stage of work and play that much more interesting and, and, and more rich. I'm just really excited about the prospect of making these tools more accessible to a wider population so that they can create experiences that are rich and engaging. And I believe, again, it's a virtuous cycle that will benefit us all in the long run. Yeah. And honestly, before right now, I didn't even fully dawn on me how much virtualization can play a role in diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially inclusion. So this is the big question of the podcast. Some of this is some people, this is the easiest thing they've ever done. Some people have spent three weeks agonizing before the call. Um, but I do need an answer from both of you. Let's start. Uh, Catherine, what is your favorite album of all time and why? Do all right. So it? I would say it's uh, Songs from the Key of Life by Stephen mm. Wonder. Oh, we got classics on the pod today. Yeah. Also, you know, my dad is big, you know, jazz head. And I grew up in a, you know, in a black household, loves like soul music, R&B, but also some of the, you know, those great 70s classics are just so, yeah, they're soulful. They speak to the human condition. They are, they really focus on the human. And so in this age in which we really get caught up in the media and social media and we are bombarded by so many messages and things I just really like the call back to the simplicity of you know the harmony and the music itself and tapping into the sense of the joy of humanity I love it I love it you know? and I love that album it's such a combination of singer songwriter stories and some of the best production to date still I mean, yeah, that's the, orchest the orchestration just blows my mind. I still always find something really beautiful in it. Just real um, quick. Uh, the Clash self-titled, obvious mm -hmm. answer. Let's go. The band that matters, super easy. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know why, like why, because it was like probably the single most important record of my life. I've heard it since like my dad was a punk rocker. I grew up that way. It's something I've heard since I was four or five and it's, changed my worldview it changes the way i approach stuff there's a great in the in the there's a magazine or is a zine when that record came out called sniffing glue that came out and there's an ad after the review of the clash record that says uh here's a chord here's another chord here's another and just diagrams of guitar chords and says now go start a band and mm -hmm. that's how i have approached everything in my life has been like, like, if I don't like the shit that I'm seeing, I'm going to go make it and I'm going to do what I like. And I'm going to make the content I like, because if I don't, nobody else is going to do it. So like, let's do it. Let's make it. And I think that also permeates the attitude at monks in the sense that being able to, to DIY and bring things together and build things. And to the point of diversity and inclusion, we have an interesting culture where it doesn't matter as much who you are. Like if you look at my resume, I'm not a traditional candidate here by, by any stretch. Half of the three to four letter like acronym companies that we often hire from, I've never heard of prior to this. And to that end, like that's okay because we bring our own voices and bring it there. So that's my long-winded answer to that question. Love uh, it. Yeah. I love it. There's a 
well, I don't know if it's still there anymore, but there was at least a Joe Strummer mural in the East Village. Yeah, right uh, on, right by Niagara, or on Niagara, the wall of Niagara, which I used to go to all the time, way back in the day when I lived in New York. Yeah, every time I saw that, it just brought yep. smiles to my face. Hell yeah, clash forever. All right, before we let you go, uh, let's bring it up to the present. Is there something you're listening to right now, be it an artist, song, podcast, maybe it's a book? What's really uh, lighting your brains on fire nowadays? Um, for me, I'm not a podcast person. I don't know why. I guess it's because I always lose my earbuds. And so <laughs> I just bring my laptop to the gym or whatever. Um, but what I, I have really just decided to start really reading a lot again so reading something about the early roman empire the ottoman empire i love history but recently mm -hmm. i also just finished katsuo ishiguro's novel called clara and the sun and it's basically about artificial intelligence and i found that really fascinating i'm always trying you know and i love upload i'm always trying to avoid stuff that's metaverse related but my fascination is personal and I've always loved this stuff. So it's really hard for me to get away from media that speaks to it because that just speaks to my inherent interest. So the ethical issues raised by upload, I find fascinating. And then history, because of course it is to a certain extent cyclical. And we see some of the recent dynamics in the geopolitical sphere being played out again because of these long drawn territories and um, and factions. So I think it's really interesting. Louis, what are you uh, listening to, reading? What are you checking out now? So, sorry, I am listening to Post Malone's new record because I am working with him on a project. It's amazing. The thing that I love about it is the fact that, I, like I said earlier, I collect records and it, records used to, sounds like such a grumpy per, old person comment, but like records used to be designed to be listened to in one sitting. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it is set up to be listened in that way. And it's designed as a long play, which is amazing. And I have ordered the vinyl for it and I cannot wait. I just set up a two channel system on a like a restored Morantz and I can't wait to listen to it there. Um, I listened to that. I've been, my wife listens to 90 songs that explain the nineties obsessively right now and books I'm a really, I'm a senior citizen. I read like nonfiction books about scuba diving and shipwrecks. Um, so that's, I'm, I'm in my side hobby, I'm a technical diver and I'm redoing some of my training right now. That's and good. so I'm reading a lot of shadow divers right now, which is, it's a book about some people that found a U-boat off of uh, New England. And a lot of people that died trying to find out which U-boat it was. It's a good book. Catherine, Lewis, thank you so much. You. Uh, this has been such a great conversation. And y'all are welcome back anytime here at the ANA Marketing Features Podcast. Thank you. Michael, Cheers. thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Futures Podcast. Have an idea for a topic or guest for a future episode? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. Be sure to subscribe to the Futures Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you're looking to get smart on the future, point your browsers to ana.net slash futures.